this is Colin Schatz. I am Seth Partnow. Um, my guest today is someone who's nice enough to send me an advanced copy of his book, which comes out next week. I have it sitting right in front of me, uh, just so I make the, get the subhead right. Uh, Net Gains, Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. Uh, from ESPN, uh, Ryan O'Hanlon. Ryan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So something that I should have anticipated but wasn't totally expected, uh, but it should have been, I guess, when I picked up the book and started reading it, is um, there's a whole chapter in the book on, on my boss. But we'll get to that in a second and and the oddness of that. Of I'm sure you've experienced this, sort of the oddness of, of reading about it when your workplace is kind of in the news. But backing yeah, way this, up. This could be a very... Uh very fraught conversation for you. Uh, <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, I, uh, I, I checked in with our head of marketing, so I'm, I'm all good to, to, uh, to fire shots as needed. Um, uh, so how did this come about? How did the project come to be? Um, so I think maybe like taking a step back w- would, would be interesting. So, sure. uh, you know, I used to be, was an editor at Grandland. um, and was an editor at The Ringer. Um, and I think, be, and before that, I was just a magazine editor. Um, not just, I don't know why I said just a magazine editor. It's a totally, totally fine, respectable thing to be. Um, and so in those jobs, like, you know, uh, uh, especially at Grantland, right? Like I, you know, it's Bill Barnwell's working there, Zach Lowe, um, uh, our baseball people, you know, Ben Limber, Michael Bauman. You know, you, you get, you're enmeshed in how, um, how much, you know, evidence-based decision-making, let's call it, um, uh, is one used to, like, analyze the sport from the outside, and then how much it's used, I guess, to varying degrees within the sport. Um, and I grew up playing soccer, played in college. It's always been my favorite sport. And, you know, I felt like I, you know, that just wasn't happening in soccer, right? So it almost felt like I had this, like, I wouldn't say time machine, but, like, it kind of felt like that. Because it's, like, all the same conversations happened are happening in each sport to different degrees, right? Like, the lifers getting mad at the nerds for taking over the sport. But then also, like, maybe the nerds overstepping certain things. And then certain things are now measured that uh, the lifers said that uh, the analytics from the nerds weren't picking up. I'm thinking of like something like pitch framing in baseball. Right. I feel like the pattern has just repeated itself roughly in each sport. So I, I feel like I, I was like seeing this, this is, hasn't yet happened in soccer, but I know how this is going to go. Cause it's, I've seen it happen multiple times. So I kind of started writing about soccer in addition on the side. Um, you know, when I wasn't editing stuff, um, kind of through this lens a little bit using, trying to be a little more objective about what we're seeing. And then over time, trying to like use it to figure out more about how the sport works. And, um, I guess more about all the things we don't know about the sport. So that happened. And I, you know, started to kind of establish myself writing in that way. Um, started to feel pretty burnt out as an editor. Um, it's not, uh, it's not a good uh, job if you're interested in work, <laughs> work life balance, being an editor on the internet. Um, so writing a book just became, it was appealing to me in terms of like the pace of it, right? And the ability to kind of take a super wide 
lens on things and kind of meander around. And um, that was really appealing to me. And I got hooked up with this agent, my agent, Howard Yoon. I had some kind of specific ideas kind of tethered around like maybe I do something on Liverpool and their sort of adoption of this stuff or maybe something on Fulham. Um, and my agent was just like, no, just like do everything. Like just take, you know, try to wrap your hands around the whole sport, which is a little daunting. Um, and I definitely didn't try to do that in the book. I just picked specific story that I thought were interesting, but he kind of encouraged me to just like tackle the idea of, oldest, most competitive, most lucrative sport in the world is still kind of being governed by gut feel at this point. Um, so that's that's the way too long genesis of the project, I guess. No, I, I can certainly relate to, to some of that, um, you know, from, from my own experience. Like, what do I want to write about? You could write about this one hot topic, or you could write about what you want to write about and you find interesting rather than try to, like, ping the, the zeitgeist, if you will. Plus, I would, I would have to imagine that, I mean, following up the, I mean, you, I think you reference it in the, the New York Times Magazine's kind of long feature on, on Liverpool's adoption of analytics. Like, why would you want to re, re, retry that ground, rewalk that ground? Seems yeah. like it's, I could do it, but it was pretty good the first time, and I'm not sure what else I could glean. Yeah. It's also like um, Bruce Schoenfeld should just do it if there's going to be a book, you know, the guy that wrote yeah. the magazine. Story. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, one of the things that I find find most interesting is is you mentioned the commonalities and um, uh, there, there's a lot of what I call the appeal to complexity, which is essentially because you can't measure everything, you can't measure anything. Which is an objection that um, certainly we see in both forms of football. I'm very familiar with it in basketball. Um, you know, that battle was lost pretty early in baseball for reasons that, you know, you talk about a little in the book and we can discuss here if you want. Why, you know, I think you boil it down perfectly well that baseball is basically the unit of pitcher versus hitter is far simpler as a concept than almost any other sport save like cricket or tennis right yep that's exactly um, right or, or or maybe something like bowling where there's not even an opponent um shots at bowling no not i mean you know it's, 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 it's a, it, well, maybe i don't know is, is there is there is, is there strategy in bowling or is it just you that's your next time? episode find the yeah. the guy doing bowling analytics yeah so um i and i find that that interesting in a in an environment where we're obsessed with little edges that, well, there's not a big, huge edge. So I'm just going to not going to try for the little ones. I've never, I don't understand that mindset. Yeah. I, I, to me, again, like as we've seen this over and over again, right. Throughout the different sports, it feels like a little intellectually dishonest, whether the people are like purposely being that way or not. It's just like, for what the reasons you said, like it's, that's just not a good it's not if you're trying to win games right you're trying to find an edge wherever you can and like because we can't you know measure the pure value of uh killian mbappe's off-ball movement right does that mean we should discount someone who figured out a way to um account for like his ability to dribble past defenders or you know um 
get the sh- get the shots from good locations, right? Like obviously it doesn't. So I think, um, I think that's that's a big part of it. I guess with soccer though, it's like when you break it down, right? It's like I've been thinking about this in comparison to basketball, you know, to the two sports that have shots, right? Of of the obviously in addition to hockey too, but of the sports you mentioned, and like the given course of a soccer game, right? There's roughly 24 shots i like i think the average across the big big five leagues is roughly 12 per team um and if like two nba teams just like took 12 shots each in a game like how many games would you need to play to have any sense of like what is actually happening in the league would you say like (laughs) right 400 you know and so like ultimately that's what these games are getting decided by right and i think there's like a tension I think it's a really interesting tension that I get that in the book um, between like soccer is super complex and the way all these pieces fit together. It's so kind of hard to understand and constantly changing, but also like it kind of just comes down to the shots. Right. And like, it comes down to comes down to who creates the better shots and who converts them. And like all the other stuff, I think we'll get better at measuring it over time. But like, I just it's hard to see any of that uh comparing in any in any kind of similar way to the, the value of what's happening next to the two goals and i think i think some of the pushback is like almost against like the idea that like it's also possible that like some soccer is a lot simpler than we make it out to be as well that hits on i think what is my favorite discussion in the book in part because it discusses one of my least favorite players of the last generation. Um, not that I think he's bad. I just, his <laughs> mastery of, of shithousery always like bugged me is, is, you know, obviously I'm talking about, you know, midfielders and, and, and yeah. you, you talk a lot about, you know, Sergio Busquets who um, for, for reasons you discuss is, you know, no one would, uh, if you were picking who is the elite athlete, out of a lineup, he's probably not one of the first people you'd pick. Um, but good things seems to happen with when, with him on the field. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I understand the uh, the fan hatred of Busquets, especially as the shithousery was kind of draped in the um, you know ideals of Barcelona, right? Right. Um, the the. Uh, the if you Wait. don't love Barcelona, you are uh, you are a philistine. Yes, exactly. Like, um, the, the the peekaboo waking. against Inter, yeah, yeah the, exactly against Inter is is one of the great pieces of 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 basically, you know. As I've become a bigger fan of wrestling, I, I start to uh, appreciate uh, people people healing well, mm-hmm. and that's that's that is some elite. You know, but at the time, it just made me so mad. Um, yeah. Well, it's like you have him, and then you have, like, the heel with Madrid is, like, Sergio Ramos. But Sergio Ramos is, like, not hiding that he's a he's a heel. Sergio Busquets uh, very much hiding it, I think. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, you know, so when you're writing a book like this, it's like, writing about soccer is kind of always, it's a little tricky, right? Because it's like, who who is my audience? Um, like, when I was at The Ringer, it's like, how many things do I have to define in this piece? Um, like, do I have to explain what the Champions League is? Do I have to explain, like, why this team gets three points? You know, so figuring out, like, writing a 
book about this topic, but wanting um, a lot of people to be able to enjoy it, right? It's kind of, um, it's a little tricky, bit of a tricky balance. And I guess, I think the midfield chapter is definitely the one for the nerds, I would say, in the book. <laughs> um, gets the most in the weeds. But yeah, so it's like, you know, so you look at the transfer market and like normal sort of classical non-goal scoring midfielders, they're just not valued as much in the transfer market. And I think good counter argument to that is, well, the transfer market is insanely inefficient as I get to in the book. Uh, record transfers um, play on average roughly 50% of the total minutes for their new clubs, which is uh, suggests that teams are pretty terrible in the transfer market. But then, you know, we kind of get into some of the efforts and I love the, your colleague, uh, Tom Lawrence did a, you know, they have these things called expected possession value models where you can kind of determine what uh, the probability that a team scores essentially from a certain area on the field is. And you can, uh, you can reward players for basically moving the ball from one area to the next. And you can kind of, you know, say you move it from a 1% area to a 12% area. There you go. Uh, you know, 0.11 goals added for this player or 0.1. You know, your point one goals I, added. I, I cringe just reducing it to that. Yes, exactly. Uh, but like, like that's a that's the first kind of effort, right? First step towards doing it. And what he calls it, like he describes it as the valley of meh. Um, basically, like he, there's like a line with like the value on it, and it's super high at one box. Then as you move toward the middle of the field, it drops down super <laughs> like super low and rises back up as you get to the other box. And, you know, most of the efforts of quantifying this stuff are still, like, just sh suggest that, like, the value between an awesome world-class midfielder and, like, kind of a league average one is way, is going to be way smaller than an attacker. And I think that's, I don't know if that's true, um, like, if we actually were able to measure everything, but I do think it's an interesting idea because one kind of upends the, kind of way I was raised to think about the game, especially as a as a mediocre college midfielder. Like, I like to think my little uh, sideways passes out of pressure were super important, but, like, maybe they're not as important, right? And that's, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting thing that kind of pulls at the, the very fabric of the reality that's been created um, around the sport, so. So... I have, I have a, like, an empirical counter to that and also an emotional one. Go to the the empirical one first, and this is you know coming back to my wheelhouse is um you would think in a sport like basketball, which is reasonably well quantified, you wouldn't find this imbalance, but I think you know we have some reasonable measures of of individual defensive ability, and offense is still compensated at a massively higher rate, and not even like necessarily good offense, but what I like to call yay points offense which is, I take shots and the ball goes in sometimes. <laughs> Yay points. Um, now, now, like, and this is not, like, it, it, you know, it's a, this is, a, I think, a, a, a fundamental difference between, you know, sports like basketball and American football and sports like hockey and soccer is sort of the necessity of alternating possessions versus just kind of continuous play in that there's not, I mean, there is, but there's not a direct opportunity cost to taking a dumb shot in soccer. Mm -hmm. Like, 
I, mean, I suppose you know you 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 know you miss it. It almost goes out for a throw in, and it's a goal kick. Okay, that's just a straight turnover. But like, you take a shot from a mile out, it gets blocked. Good things can still happen from there. So it's not yeah. like you've. Whereas you chuck up some you know bullshit twenty foot, you know pull up jumper with nineteen on the shot clock in basketball. You might as well have you know taken a doll out of your pocket and lit it on fire. Mm-hmm. And so it's not quite the same thing. But the the guys who you know do that and they go in thirty seven percent of the time or whatever, still get yay plus two points. Pay me. Um, and, and that, so that existing, even in the sport where we kind of know better leads me to suspect that the, the fact that we haven't, we, we haven't been able to figure out the thing that it, it isn't a goal. It isn't an assist. It isn't a, a, a block. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, it's, it's, so we're not, we're not valuing it. And so we're just kind of ignoring it. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's where I would land too, but I still don't know like what the, to what uh, degree uh, that would kind of maybe raise up some and of these players? My emotional response is: I'm a fan of Manchester United, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and let you tell me that midfield play doesn't matter after you know years of McFrey. Well, perhaps maybe the better way to frame it is like, provided you are sort of, uh, let's say, uh, payroll. Your your team has midfielders that are. Requisite to the payroll of your sure. team, right? Then maybe maybe it's a little different. But when you have you know Scott McTominay and Fred, uh, that's a huge area of potential upgrade. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't um, I lean more towards you as well, and I think I kind of get into this in the book as well. Like there is like some there is a thing I don't know how you would quantify it. Maybe you could tell me I'm wrong here. We can sort of circle around the table, and you can be on the other side. But I think the like tempo aspect of it and like knowing when to push the ball forward and when to not, um, I think that there is a lot of, there's something to that as well. Um, um, and I think that's what sort of someone defending Busquets, not even really defending, but someone, you know, on his side of this conversation we're having, I think would say as well. And I don't know how you would, how you would measure that other than connecting it to like team success, right? I mean, there's the, the two things that come to mind. The first is something that I don't think you really touch on it in the book, but something Michael Cayley talks about a lot is is a defensive possession, where mm-hmm. I have we have the ball, so you don't. Yeah. Um, and like you know, all right, th- that has to have some value. Mm-hmm. Even just the the avoidance of like a lot of different ways you've shown that that, or you've you've talked to people and who've shown that. Uh, a lot of threat comes from directly from turning the ball over. Some we yeah. just don't turn it over. If we're if we're gonna if we're gonna give it away, it's gonna be on a you know a long diagonal pass to the opposite end of the field. But if it's in here in the middle of the field, we're just gonna keep it and circulate it. And then then the other part of it, and this is maybe you know drawing on a on a completely different sport. I don't know if you if you have any experience with with ultimate. Um, which I mean, it, which, uh, which but you brought it up the last time we talked as well, so I'm glad glad we're back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's yes, but it's so it's uh, you know it has some combinations of of both the use of space that that soccer has because the the disc flies relatively slow um, to relative to people running, but also the alternating possession. 
But there's very there's a great deal of importance to just kind of moving the thing around until mm-hmm. okay now we can now we can now we can go for the the kill shot. Yeah. Just just moving it around and and giving the defense chance to make mistakes so that the 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 fancy guys can, you know, I'm always, you know, I one of the first tournaments I watched closely was 98 World Cup and it was, you know, it was it was Zidane and and Didier Deschamps was famously described as a water carrier for yep. um now maybe it's piano he, carrier i believe yeah. is another one i've heard too. yeah maybe <laughs> it just means you yeah i think that's angelo delivio uh but it's going going way back um <laughs> um and maybe that just means he was actually bad and they would have been better off playing uh you know a, a person who had actually used the ball in that slot or yeah but even like uh like i just it's, I just read a piece, the Classicos, this weekend, Real Madrid and Barcelona, and I was going back and kind of looking at the sort of team building of Real Madrid, and for people that aren't soccer fans, they basically, um, from like 2000 to 2006, they basically just essentially just tried to sign the most famous soccer player on the planet um, every year with no regard for how they fit, which like probably would be fine in basketball if you did that, um, but soccer, no, and I think they the players themselves talk about they got rid of Claude Mekalele, basically, um, who was their sort of no nonsense defensive midfielder, covered a lot of ground, great positioning, didn't lose the ball. Um, and, you know, was he replaced by a player that like these sort of expected possession value models would have rated higher than Claude Mekalele? Probably. Right. Um, but the team also the players and it seemed in the results that they got worse without him. So, you know, the, there's all these um uh, different dynamics at play. It's sort of, uh, the, the person who allows those players to do the thing. Yep. And we haven't really figured that out yet. Yeah, and it's just so hard to like, you know, in the NBA, right? It's like there's just like experiments going on left and right with different lineups and different combinations of players. Soccer, like, so you can kind of tether that to the team performance with those different combinations of players. But with soccer, it's just like there's five subs now, but in the past only three, and most of the same players are always on the field. So it's really hard to it's really hard to connect any like uh, individual performance to team wide performance for that reason. So here's actually I was this is what I wanted to talk about last, but let's 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 talk yeah. about it now. Is sort of um, an area where I think there's actually a lot more commonality is okay. like we have these measures these, these you know adjusted plus minus when you look at it when a player's on the floor when he's off the floor i think it's not readily understood how contextual those va- the values that come from those models are mm-hmm. so it's they're often interpreted as this player is this good yeah and it's really this player was this effective used that way mm-hmm. and we don't have we haven't gone much farther in defining what use this way is in basketball as we have. And and I would say, in fact, that the roles are better defined in soccer, even if we haven't necessarily done the other part of the equation and measuring effectiveness in that role. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I think that, that, that we're, uh, I was amused when you, uh, when you you quoted Luke Bourne as, as as sort of opining that you could robo GM basketball, but not soccer, um, let let me surmise Luke is a friend. So let me uh, let me suggest that this is a uh, this is a viewpoint that has changed in his mind 
given uh, through contact with 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 actual soccer. Um, but that's not here nor there. Yeah, um, that, that's interesting, and I think you know for the player role thing you bring up something that's. I wonder if this could happen in basketball. In soccer, you've seen over the past year, this guy, Michael um, Imbergio, his name is, and uh, this guy, Sam Goldberg, who's Sam is now a data, data scientist with the Red Bull um, group of teams. Uh, again, for people who don't know, Red Bull uh, just owns a bunch of soccer teams and they're all really good. And have just gotten good within like 15 years because um, of all the you know, soccer know-how within the energy drink corporation. I, I, I did not realize that RB and RB Leipzig did not stand for Red Bull until yeah. I, uh... <laughs> it's beautiful. But so they, they built this model using only event data. Um, so there's limitations like event data, meaning tackles, passes, interceptions, things that happen with the ball. So like 3% of what happens on the field. Um, and they used it to define player roles basically. So the algorithm can like, sees your sort of collection of things you do on the field and it classifies let's say trent alexander arnold as like a wide progressor rather than a fullback um because he moves the ball up the field from wide areas and so he might have that in common with players that aren't fullbacks right um and then there's you know playmakers finishers um box to box sort of midfielders deep progressors there's all different sort of uh, a little more fine-grained uh, roles, I guess, that they're defining players. And I think John Muller at The Athletic did a, his own version of this, and he has very sort of um, whimsical names for all, all the various roles, like Explorer and stuff like that. Um, I, w- I wonder if that's like a... Because you can kind of like... You can sort of see like, okay, the best teams have like these roles are all filled by certain certain players or certain players are half filling these roles and creating one role. I wonder if there's like some way to do that. I'm, someone's probably trying to do it with basketball. Like what are the, what are the roles and like what, who, how many of these roles do you need to be a sort of, you know, upper, upper level team or something like that? People have, I think that, 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 um, my this is I haven't studied it deeply in soccer, so this may be just completely wrong. But I think that the ball is so like getting to do stuff with the ball is so kind of rivalrous in basketball. Mm-hmm. In that, if we you know we have twenty four seconds, we come down the floor, we call a pick and roll for me. That's a possession. You're probably not running a pick and roll. Yeah. So so just the fact that 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 you know possession is taken off the table for you kind of impacts the 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 you know it, it can distort like you can see even at some very high level stuff you can see how certain players you know distort how their teammates play the two best examples yeah. i can think of are ironically teammates now um in lebron james and russell westbrook like you look at uh um it was really interesting to look at like victor oladipo like his play style what he did how often he had the ball how often he drove how often he ran certain actions before he he went to to play for the, the the thunder with Russell Westbrook he had a certain style then he had a very different style when he played with the thunder and Russell Westbrook then he gets traded to Indiana and he his style he was he was better at it but his style of play looked exactly like it did in Orlando um, interesting and and um and you can see things like that with 
a lot of people who've played with Westbrook over their career. Essentially, the only player who's immune to that was Kevin Durant, which, okay, if you have to be Kevin Durant. Um, and, um, you know, in if in many places, LeBron has had kind of that, that you know, we especially when he got to the Lakers, we didn't really know what any of their young players were because they never got to do anything because yeah. a LeBron team plays like a LeBron team. Yeah, I think um, that's a similar... I, I don't know. I've always thought that Messi and LeBron are like, despite I feel like Le, they share nothing in common in terms of their physical traits, but in terms of like the ball dominance and like you just being better off having this guy touch the ball because it's going to like, you know, the outcome is likely to be 30% better than anyone else in the world touching the ball. So you just want them touching the ball all the time. And then they're also like the best passer, the best dribbler, the best scorer in a given situation. And I think with Messi, um, especially like as he's gotten older um it's a it's a very similar thing like when he played with Neymar and Suarez Neymar was much more of like a secondary creator um was on the ball a lot less at, at Barcelona and then when Messi would get injured Neymar was basically doing exactly what Messi did um so yeah it, it just the, the LeBron idea just made me think of that I, would, I on, like funnily enough, I would have I would have thought Ronaldo was the was sort of later career Ronaldo, just because you have to. Well, he's going to be there and he's going to do this and only this. So how do yeah. you set up the rest of your team around, or not bother to think about how you set up the rest of the team around this at times? But again, that's not oh, I'm not going to be bitter. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, I think that 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 level of of contextualism is is very common across both sports and the bigger difference I think you hit on earlier is just the enormously higher sample size that we have both the, both a, a a larger and sort of more homogenous sample size that there is in basketball yep. like it, it, especially in the NBA where where um, I think the degree to which stylistic um, similarity between teams is overdone, but the 24, again, the eight, the best players in the world and 24 seconds and everyone basically being a, you know, an NBA level player does narrow the range of, of plausible strategies on its own. Like even before you get to all, oh, everyone tries to shoot threes. Um, but it's still like anything you, you, even though I think that's over, oversold, anything you try to do on the floor has probably happened 50,000 times before. Yeah, you know, in in some sense, and that's like to some degree that might be true in soccer. But this is my question for you: is how much of this is we just haven't named the things yet? Uh, my guess is like my guess, and I'm using other other sports as to inform this guess is that. I would say it's seventy percent. We haven't named the things yet, and then thirty percent. Uh, we might just never name the things, I think. Um, because I, I think, you know, like tracking data is, the Premier League's had it for a little while now, but even that, like, they only have tracking data for the other Premier League teams, right? And that limits what you can do when the, there's a global pool of players and, you know, you typically, if you're finding value in players, you're not signing them from the Premier League. Um, and like the the wider public does not have access to this stuff, and I think at least at least in baseball, I don't know you could, you would know more about basketball. Like more people having more access to this tracking data 
just it drives things forward more, I think. Um, and, but that's all out there and those things are getting measured and it's very hard to figure out what to do with it. But like, you know, there's really smart, like Luke is a brilliant guy, um, studied a lot more complex things in soccer before he started running soccer teams. Um, Liverpool have a guy that worked on discovering the Higgs boson particle in their front office. So again, much harder, much more complex than soccer, which is why it's funny to hear a coach being like, well, it's just too dynamic, you know? I'm laughing because in our company Slack, uh, someone asked me, how many times does he mention Higgs boson? I think he was, he was, he was anticipating you you were going to be talking about uh, Will, Will Spearman uh, from Liverpool. He Um, knows me too well. (laughs) That's it. Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, that is a pretty good claim to fame. Yeah. Um, so, you know, having mentioned a couple of people, how did you sort of decide uh, the, um, the, the book is written in a very sort of conversational narrative where you are doing the very Michael Lewis thing. And I mean, that as a compliment of sort of using, you know, individuals as avatars to sort of take us through the, the, the world here. How did you sort of hit upon the, the, uh, the, the, the player, the, the people, the, the, the players in the field uh, in particular, uh, there was one. There was one person I'd never heard of who I thought was absolutely fascinating. I bet you could guess which one. But uh, Richard Pollard. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I I guess like I roughly knew the ideas that I wanted to kind of get into, um, and, and I think there's a yeah, like you like you said when you um, wrongly compared me to Michael Lewis. Um, just kidding. Um, you very rightly did that. Um, I like had the kind of ideas I knew that I wanted to get at. And then I figure out the people that I thought I would love to talk to, but wouldn't be willing to talk. Then the people that I wanted to talk to and basically run through the list of people. And frankly, a lot of it ultimately, you know, this isn't the book proposal I sent over with the chapter um, outlines of the proposal. It wasn't exactly um, how this came out. And a lot of it, a lot of it gets determined by like how well the reporting goes, right? Like I talked to Luke and Luke um, a bunch and we had a lot of awesome conversations. Then he also just like happened to like buy multiple soccer teams while I was reporting the book. So it's like, oh, like (laughs) that fits really nicely here. Um, And then there's some other, other kind of people with clubs that maybe wasn't able to talk to as much um, or didn't get as much, um, stuff out of to kind of, uh, carry a chapter. Right. So then you kind of have to figure that out. So I I don't know. I I think some some of it was very planned, like the expected goal stuff. I knew how I wanted to get into that. Um, the midfield stuff, I kind of knew how I wanted to get into that, even though that's by far like the most meandering chapter, the Red Bull stuff definitely knew how I wanted to get into that. But then was able to talk to Jesse and have some good conversations with him. Jesse Marsh, who used to be the coach of RB Leipzig um, and is now the coach of Leeds United. And that, you know, when you have a good conversation and the reporting goes well, right, it's like, well, like, there, there you go. Like, that. that's the center of this chapter. So I think it's like a lot of it is planned. And, you know, some of the good stuff is like a lot of the analytics people in soccer are still like, sort of on the periphery, right? So it makes it a little bit easier to get access to these people. Um, and then some of it just 
you know, you have a, you have great conversations over zoom mostly cause I'm doing this entire book during the pandemic. Um, so it kind of just, some of it's planning and some of it is just like organic kind of creative process and things just coming together, I guess. So talk to me about Richard Pollard. Cause okay. this was like, I, like you, you were describing some of the stuff, the, the number of different things that it's like, Oh yeah, I knew that 30 years ago. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm making it, I'm making it sound maybe more like, like more, more of jackassery than it really comes off as in the book. Not, it's not like, it's oh, like, he, oh had, yeah, he I, has receipts, receipts for all the things that he said. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not like, it's not like, it's not like, damn it. I don't get credit for anything. It's like, Oh, I, that's the thing. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I thought of that a while ago. Um, yeah. How come I've never heard of this person before? So did you know of Charles Reap? Yes. Uh, okay. So for people who don't know who Charles Reap is, he sort of is considered, as far as we know, like the first sort of empowered, I guess, data analyst in soccer. And this maybe is like the... T- close to, maybe in, close to in sports. Right? He's uh, probably contemporaneous with Branch Rickey. So I yeah. mean, it's probably, you know similar time frame yeah so you know right at kind of the end of the world war he starts like recording everything that happens at a local game he's famously like wears a miner's helmet um because there's no lights like in the there's no floodlights in the stands um and he just developed this like wild shorthand to like record everything that happened in the game every shot every pass um it's kind of ridiculous when you think of like all the like computing power that's needed to like gather the data for an NBA game or a soccer game these days. And like this guy was just like doing all that on his own. So Um, it's funny. It's funny if I can break in John Schumann of NBA.com does something similar when he watches games. He's He's still doing it. (laughs) Well, I mean, he, there's, there's stuff that just doesn't, you know, when he like, that's how he takes notes of games. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like, I've, I've seen a, copy of it and it's like i have no idea what this means but you do so that's good enough yeah and it's, it's probably that's like a good way to get into like probably makes him an effective watcher of games right you yeah. kind of blocked in because you know what you want to record so you don't like have those possessions where your mind kind of wanders and then it's like oh a bunch of things just happen and they're not going to be in my mental register for this game but anyway so charles reap like does all this analysis and kind of gets in inverting the pyramid by Jonathan Wilson kind of famously, and then in a bunch of other pieces after the fact, his story becomes that his main sort of takeaway is that he realizes, or in his data, he finds that possessions with the fewer, like fewer passes in a possession, roughly, I think it's three or fewer, four or fewer. Those possessions lead to goals more often than possessions with um, more passes. So he sees this, and he just becomes like, well, we, you got to just like this, these teams that are passing the ball sideways are just like, you know, like, what are you doing, guys? Like, just boot it forward and win the ball back. And then you're going to score goals more often. Right. And I think what he his big mistake from a just a pure like data analysis standpoint was that, um, he, you know, the there are more possessions with fewer passes in them per game so like they're by definition almost more likely to be shorter possessions that lead to goals more often than longer possessions but if you break it down like the longer possessions 
a higher percentage of the longer possessions lead to goals. So he kind of missed that in his um, analysis. Um, and he became kind of, it seems like he did become very kind of vociferous that like, this is how you have to play the sport. And it sort of caught on with the kind of British way of playing of the time. Like the continental way was a lot more patience, sideways passing, while the British game kind of always prioritize this sort of like blood and guts, you know, um, one more time over the wall. Exactly. So like when you see this guy creating all this data being like, yeah, this is how you should play. I think that's kind of how he, he caught on and he famously caught on with Graham Taylor who coached Watford and then the English national team. So, and then the English national team doesn't qualify for the 94 world cup. And like, it's kind of this way of playing is completely disowned in England. And basically is the end of the story. Um, and, Richard Pollard became like friends with Reap. He's significantly younger because he saw some of Reap's writing in one of the various, you know, there was like freaking 20 soccer magazines in the, like weekly soccer magazines in the UK at this point. Um, so he became friendly with him and um, basically stayed in touch with him, but eventually moved to Fiji rather than working for Watford. And in Fiji, he's just like doing data analysis of the Fijian national team. And like the Fiji sun just has like shot maps in like 1970, like on their page. And it has like Richard Pollard being like, you know, they took four shots in this game. And on average, you need to shoot 10 times to score. And that's just like a very proto version of what like expected goals are, I guess. Um, and so he's doing all this stuff and like no one knows about him because he's in Fiji. And then he moves to Malawi and Bulgaria and like continues to do the same stuff and maintains this correspondence with Reap, but fades out of the view um, in sort of higher level soccer. And then he moves to the U S and like, he got paid to be an analyst for UC Santa Barbara in like late eighties, early nineties. And funnily enough, he says that was the um, first time he was paid uh, to be an analyst. Um, and... I won't spoil it, but first time he was paid money. Yes, exactly. First time he was paid money. So, you know, no one, you don't really hear about him because, like, he's just not, he he doesn't kind of break into the, the mainstream in any way. And Charles Reap kind of gets burned down by the mainstream. So I stumble across this paper written by Richard Pollard defending Reap. And I'd never really seen anyone defend him. And I think, you know, there's some issues with the paper. Um, but so I reached out to Richard and then it turns out he lives in Los Angeles. Um, and we started talking and he's kind of just like telling me all this stuff. And he's like, yo, you know, we thought we should push our defensive line really high up and try to win the ball in the attacking third. And I'm like, well, that's kind of like, you know, the big tactical like trend of the past 10 years. Like that's what Liverpool does. That's how they won the premier league. And he's like, Oh, I haven't watched like a game in five or 10 years. Then he's like, I also, we also thought our keeper was very important because, like, why would you, why would you not use all eleven players in possession, right? And then I was like, well, uh, Ederson, the goalie for Manchester City, like, that's why they bought him, like, less to save shots and more to just like play long passes very accurately. And he was like, oh, that's interesting. I'll have to watch him. And so we talked, and I just realized that like the Reap story gets boiled down to the one thing he got wrong, but they created and analyze all this other stuff that's like now with the computing power is being done way more um uh with way more nuance i guess 
but they were like discovering a lot of stuff about how the game worked and like no one really gave a shit um and thank you know thankfully he's around and i went over to his house and like in his garage he just has like it's basically a early soccer analytics museum he saved literally every every letter there's um a letter elton john owned owned fulham or watford at the time of reap was working for them and he like asks graham taylor to show elton john some of the analysis that he's done and there's like a letter from Grand Taylor saying like, I don't really think Sir Elton is going to go for this, but I'll, I'll, I'll see if he, see if he's interested. So it was a uh, just very kind of really super interesting guy. And I'm glad that you, you found him interesting as well. I mean, that's, that was, that was a pretty thrilling part of the book to, to, to read for me. Just, uh, you know, these, these, these lost figures that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the Bill James story has been told so much, but yeah. it seems like there are, um, it's reminding me a little of, uh, of, of uh, I don't know if you've read a book called The Perfect Pass, which I read recently, which is about the, the, the sort of uh, development of the air raid offense in football. Okay. There's, a, there's, a, there's, there's some, you know, long lost, you know, people who decided for passing is good, actually, yeah. in football, <laughs> you know, back when that Alan was. Oh, yeah. I mean, even before that, back when yeah. it was little, little, literal heresy, almost. Um. <laughs> Speaking, so it talked a little bit about naming the things. Um, you say in the book, and I, I've talked to other people, certainly at Statsbomb, who um, I, I, I very much agree that naming things well is important. Um, and I, I'm, I've always been very surprised that people think that expected goals is poorly named. I mean, it, especially it comes right after you just got done talking about Corsi and PDO. Which are yeah. like completely like one of them is a dude with a mustache, yeah. and the other one is an acronym that doesn't mean that isn't an acronym. Yes, and expected goals—it's all right there in the name. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's it's. I don't know what else you would call it, right? Like what uh, Richard uh, said, they would call it like yield. I think was their term, and that's not going to catch on more than expected goals. So. I mean, I guess it's, it's, I mean, I, the, the, the notion of expected is hard for people is the yeah. only thing I can think of. Yeah. And if, I, I almost think it becomes easier when it just becomes XG as opposed yeah. to expected goals. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, it's almost like, it's, just, almost it's like a theoretical I, thing. Yeah. When I like write a piece, it's like, it's just, I should just do XG. I shouldn't do the first mention of it being expected goals. But yeah, I mean, I, I, so like that's from an, one of the characters in the book is just like this is a terrible name um, and a very kind of smart, very plugged in, very influential guy named Paul Power. And he, his take was that it just like set football analytics back by a decade. And like perhaps it did. Right. Because it's like and one thing that is important to note. Right. Is like I'm an American. I wrote this book using kind of the American sports as a lens to look at this but like we speak the same language but like it is a different sports culture in the uk so like i don't know what the alternative to expected goals would have been um i don't know how you could have really named it differently um but i do think you're right that like the expected part is like what gets in people's sticks in their craw or whatever but like i don't know what else i don't know what else you're gonna do really 
I, I wonder how much of it is we're, we're just so much more used to in American sports because the box score has just been a thing. That well, so just... he, here's a, a good anecdote, anecdotal example that might not speak for the way reality is, but it was my experience. So I wrote a piece um, for ESPN like, I don't know, a month, month ago, two months ago, and I was just like, the piece was just like, the box score we use in soccer is like terrible, right? Like, and also like, it's not a, it's not a cultural thing in the way that it is in baseball, even if you think the baseball box score is bad, right? So it's like, why don't we just like on broadcasts and on websites, why don't we just like show a better collection of statistics? Like if you watch the game, when you watch soccer game, it's just like at halftime, it's like shots, possession, fouls, offsides, corner kicks, cards. And, like, that's just, like, most of those are just, like, that doesn't do anything, right? So the article is just, like, why don't we just, like, do that a little bit better? Like, I think it could be, and it honestly, on the TV show, right, it could provide a little bit of, like, oh, that's an interesting number there. Maybe we can, like, discuss why that might be. And so I just, like, suggested a new version of this, right? So it was, like, possession, field tilt, which is roughly just, like, possession but only for the final third of each field so just kind of quantifying more dangerous possession passes into the penalty area shots um and expected goals um just like those things i think you get it you're missing a lot of stuff but you're getting a rough a decent sense of what kind of went on in the game and so i wrote that thinking like no one cares about the box score like it's no one cares um and i just got like i would say i got at least 20 tweets of a gif of a burning American flag in response to that and people just being like you you just gotta like get out of here like stay out of our sport like this is terrible and like so like if that's the pushback I'm getting for just like what if we just like had slightly better stats for these stupid like box halftime box score you know I, I think that speaks to something there of just not really being not really being ready for this new way of thinking, I guess. How many of those uh, those those nasty emails were from uh, from my coworker uh, Pablo Rodriguez, um, <laughs> who routinely says in our company Slack, "Stay out of soccer, Americans." Um, but anyway, uh, I, I guess I, I'd have to finish. Like we, we've dod- we've dodged the topic until now, but but I think I got about five minutes before I got to let you go. Is I was not expecting there to be a whole chapter about my boss. So uh, <laughs> tell, tell me what you learned about Ted Knutson in, uh, in, in, in writing this book. I uh, learned a lot about sort of how uh, chasing relationships, we'll call it that, sort of led to various things that he did in his life. Um, and I, I think I learned, like, I don't know, I just think the, like, like I say this in the book, but like, so stats bomb is, you know, it's now a, I don't know what basically every team that is like, knows what they're doing is paying at least for stats bomb data. At this point. Um, so someone, uh, you know, like the stats bomb started out as like your boss, Ted, like blogging about magic, the gathering, um, which, which he was super into the, the fantasy sort of card game. Um, and he kind of like, you know, 
went from there to gambling or uh, working for betting houses and like that led him towards soccer and then the blog like transitioned to do a blog about um you know kind of this guy right with with fresh eyes looking at soccer with fresh eyes which is really interesting um and he starts to blog about soccer and then it kind of gains some purchase right and then um that turns into StatsBomb, which is just like a repository for all the blogs. And then StatsBomb like get, becomes a super popular blog. And then StatsBomb becomes a small consultancy. Then Ted gets hired away. Then Ted comes back. And then StatsBomb becomes like a data company. So I, I think like it's just like a fascinating like talk about like being like the ultimate outsider, like approaching a sport that is insanely insular. Um, being like a Magic the Gathering blogger that's transformed himself into like the guy who runs a um, <laughs> soccer consult- consultancy and data company. I think just like the the meandering kind of nature of, of Ted's story, I think is just like, it's just fascinating. I I think it's it's interesting to me in, in, in because it's it is a proxy for almost an entire generation of of analysts of, of analytics professionals across I would say just about every sport I mean if you mm-hmm. if you scratch the surface of people who have been doing this for a decade and are now in high you know in have gotten places in you know across the NBA in baseball in in hockey you scratch the surface and you're gonna find gaming and uh, gambling and poker yeah in a lot of places. And, and I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it's the mindset of, okay, well, there's risk. There's also reward. How do I balance that? Yeah. Cause I, th- I think, uh, across sports, we talk about risks so much more than we talk about rewards mm-hmm. that, um, I think a lot of what a lot, if, if we had to boil down a lot of what the battles are is okay yeah it might go wrong but it's worth it yeah whether it's going for it on fourth down whether it's it's you know trying that that through ball whether it's it's you know whether it's you know not going for the quick two um (laughs) it you know i i that, that i think those are commonalities across all things it's just like all right we're in a spot here where it's likely to be bad, but it, it's less likely to be bad if we do X versus, well, it'll be worse. And, and uh, you know, I, I was interesting that, uh, you know, you're talking about Sir Alex Ferguson. And it's like, well, we're down 2-1. I don't, why do I care if we lose 3-1? to Yep. Which is like, that seems obvious, but it's, it's it, that, that is sort of antithetical to the way a lot of professional sports has operated. Yep. Well, the betting thing, I think, in particular, is like is important is important to like frame the way of looking at the sport, right? Because it's like to be like a an actual professional sports better, like you need you're making like frequently making bets that are like, oh, I think this has like a seven percent chance of paying off, but the betting market says that uh, it has a five percent. You know, you're making these like bets where you're like, okay, I think this has a seven percent chance of working out, but the betting market is telling me it has like a eight, five uh, percent chance of working out, four percent chance of working out. So if I just keep making this bet, 
over the long run, I'm going to profit from this, right? And I think that's roughly what you kind of see in every sport, right? Like the hot button issue right now is like going for it on fourth down. Um, and that and that's the same thinking, right? Like over the long run, if we do this um, enough times, we're going to be, we're going to stack more wins than we would if we didn't do that, even though it's going to fail a lot of the time because that's like the nature of like probability and sports. Um, and I think with soccer, like, I think that's kind of uh, the sort of offense versus defense idea, right? Like if you push your whole team up the field and try to like compress the game into the other team's half, like you're probably going to give up some goals where like, it looks like a really easy goal for the other team, but you're making the bet that like you only give up so many of those that like in the long run, um, you are going to score more goals because the way you play also relate also relinquishes control in a way and does concede some of those goals. And I think that that roughly, like you said, that's like roughly kind of what's happening in every sport to different degrees. Right. I would like, I, on some level, I would say that getting score on against the rut of play is good actually. Yeah. Cause then Cause it means it, like you have the run of play. Exactly. <laughs> uh, very, very last thing before I let you go is, um, there's a there's a tension between sort of the romanticism of of sports in general and you know soccer in many ways. I mean, it's I don't know if American people are familiar with like the Roy of the Rovers and sort of this this mythical kind of Bunyan esque like yeah. <laughs> dribbles through everyone, scores a goal, runs off into the sunset. Um, uh, but the, the the tension between efficiency and romanticism. Um, is that is that an inherent tension or do you think they can go hand in hand um i think they can go hand in hand because i think one of the things i didn't know where i would sort of end the book um not where i would end the book but i didn't know like what my actual takeaways would be one because like this stuff as i'm sure it's true in basketball things change pretty quickly in 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 this field with all the work people are doing and like i started working on the book and like 2018 and it's 2022 so like a lot can change but i think like i think the 70 30 thing i said earlier is kind of what makes allows them to exist so like if you look at the efficiency as the way of like the search for like the best way to win soccer games right i think that's maybe a more romantic way of framing it and then the 30 percent is like that search is probably impossible in the long run and i also think that like the way teams approach the game affects the way the other team approaches the game. And so like, given how fluid it is, I think a lot of, we're probably going to see going forward, like the questions that we're trying to be answered might, that might not be the right question, like 10 years from now. So I think, um, I think those two things actually can exist together in an interesting way. But I also think that like, there is just a craving for like, like, people don't want to hear that their team got lucky, right? That like, you know, you gave up 20 shots and like your keeper played really well and like you converted one chance. They don't want to read that about a game, right? They want to read that like, you know, that they defended like lions and then they like steeled themselves for the one decisive moment and they scored a goal. And this is why the team is going to like push why, on. Going why forward. can't they both be true? I, th those, the, the, I think they should be able to be true, but in my experience, a lot of people don't yeah. want 
them to be true at the same time, I guess. Uh, deal deal with the fact that, that randomness has a large impact on your life no matter what you do, people. But uh, then we wouldn't be able to, like, gather around whatever team is in crisis after a given weekend in the Premier League if we if we did that. So and 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 and, and you need and you need the content on it on yeah. you need you need to feed the content monsters so may it ever be thus. Um, yeah and it also creates I can then create content that's saying that this is actually not true. You know, so it, it aids me in a way too. There you go. Well, this is, I've already I I, I said we we're gonna talk for forty five minutes. We've been going for about an hour ten. So thank you so much for for coming on, I uh, want to just give end with telling people where they can uh, win and where people can get the book. And and uh, and, and thanks a lot. Yeah, no, I, I love coming on. Uh, sorry that someone knocked on my door in the middle middle of our conversation, and then my dog went wild. But so the book is called Net Gains Inside the Beautiful Games Analytics Revolution. It's out next Tuesday, October eighteenth. Available anywhere online. Uh, if you guys want to pre-order all the big bookstores should have it and i think most kind of local smaller bookstores there's a decent chance they might have it as well will also be available on kindle um audiobook too so yeah just wherever wherever you buy your book it'll be available on the 18th and i've also some people who aren't seth who got a advanced copy some people who ordered the pre-order the book already got their copies um unbeknownst to me so uh you know, if you pre-order it tonight, there's a small chance it might just like arrive tomorrow. So, if you want to, you know, play those odds, go for it. Very cool. La- very last question: Did you read the? Did you narrate the uh, audiobook, or did did they get someone else to do it? <laughs> they gave me the option, and I was kind of like, I've never written a book before. Am I supposed to say yes? So I was like, Oh, okay, maybe, maybe I'll do it. And then we got closer, and I was like, That that sounds terrible. I have no interest in doing that. So they gave me a couple options. I believe uh, the person who narrated Seabiscuit's audiobook um, did mine. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, that was it. Was a uh, when they were doing the audio when they made the offer to do the audiobook of of mine. It was if they'd have if 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 one of the conditions had been I read it, there would have been no audiobook because I had <laughs> I had less than zero desire. Um, yes, I'm with you. Um. Well, I, I really enjoyed it. I encourage people uh, to, to read it. It's a, it's a very, uh, for, especially for the subject matter, very breezy read, um, which I thought was very well done. Um, there is Appreciate no math uh, for people who are worried about that. Um, and, uh, uh, and only a couple charts. Um, yeah, it's audiobook friendly. Exactly. So I would encourage people to, to go read it. And, uh, and you know, uh, thanks a lot for, for joining me for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it, Seth. And thanks, folks, for listening. I will be back tomorrow. Uh, hard right turn. Uh, going to go into into basketball preview mode. We're going to talk Lakers with the Athletics' Jovan Buha. So uh, this if this conversation was all sweetness and light, uh, that one will not be. Uh, so thanks a lot for listening, and talk to you all then. Take care.